Welcome to a special edition of Southbank Centre's book podcast. I'm here in the Royal Festival Hall Cafe, surrounded by literature lovers and festival goers. For the past 12 years, Southbank Centre's London Literature Festival has brought together today's leading writers, thinkers and cultural observers to explore the burning issues of our times. In previous years, we've been on a voyage through the entirety of Moby Dick. We've heard Hillary Clinton's strong views on alternative facts, the voice of Margaret Atwood's handbag, and we've heard poetry from Claudia Rankin, Anne Carson, and a host of poets for Poetry International. And we've seen the dreams of refugees projected onto the wall of the Royal Festival Hall, to name just a few. This year, we'll have everything from a celebration of Homer's Odyssey to an examination of contemporary America in the lead up to the midterm elections. And we'll be bringing you an election special next month. So keep an eye or an ear out for that one. Now we're going to hear from Roger Daltrey, founder and singer of The Who, who is in conversation with Will Hodgkinson in the Royal Festival Hall. Good evening. I'm Ted Hodgkinson, Head of Literature and Spoken Word here at Southbank Centre, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to the Royal Festival Hall for the opening event of London Literature Festival. We're kicking off the festival in truly rock and roll style tonight, hearing from a man whose life rises from the rubble of post-war London up through the raucous energy of the 60s and ascends to the greatest heights of musical and artistic expression. A driving force of one of the most iconic bands of all time, his unmistakable voice has left a tingle in many of our spines and changed rock and roll forever. My first introduction to The Who came when my old man played a cassette of Who's Next and proudly announced he'd come off his motorbike when he first heard Barbara O'Reilly. I wasn't on a motorbike at the time, but if I was, I probably would have come off. So I learned from a young age that it was music so powerful it could create traffic accidents. Now, for the first time, we'll hear about the experiences behind the music in Roger Daltrey's own words. Thanks a lot, Mr. Kibblewhite is written with earthy wit and disarming candor and takes us beyond the headlines and myths from schoolyard scrapes and his earliest attempts at making music to being at the very forefront of a, of a generation of musicians who changed everything. London Literature Festival runs from now until the 28th of October and over the next few days we'll be hearing from more iconic voices from across the arts who have left indelible impressions on culture from visual, visual art to film. But tonight is all about the music. Roger Daltrey will be in conversation with the journalist and author Will Hodgkinson, who has written from numerous publications and is chief rock and pop critic for The Times. His books include Songman and Guitarman. As far as we know, we're not related, but I can assure you that we Hodgkinsons do make excellent interviewers, so you'll be in good hands tonight. In a moment, you'll hear a brief extract from Thanks a Lot, Mr. Kibblewhite, accompanied by a slideshow of images from Roger Daltrey's remarkable life. After that, Roger Daltrey himself and Will Hodgkinson will take to the stage. I also want to thank Performance Interpreting and Stage Text for the interpretation tonight. They've been practicing their air guitar out in the corridor. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to London Literature Festival. We were doing longer and longer shows. We were hitting three hours, which required huge levels of energy and concentration. So I became obsessed by sleep. It became the thing in my life. And as any insomniac will tell you, if you think about sleep, you worry about it, and then it becomes even more elusive. I just lay there each night thinking, 
I have to go to sleep now. If I don't, I won't make it through tomorrow night's show. It's going to be too late. I have to sleep. Now, hurry up and go to sleep. Maybe I should have just counted sheep. The mandrax was prescribed quite innocently by my own doctor rather than one of the mysterious tour suppliers. Those guys were too busy keeping Keith upright. The doc didn't want to give me the pills, but I was desperate. I told him I wouldn't make it through the tour without them, and eventually he relented. That's why there are so many casualties in our business. It's so intense. The temptation to take something to maintain balance is huge. First, you take the downers to bring you out of the clouds after a show. Then you need the uppers to put you right back up there in time for the next one. I never needed the upper. I never did the full Elvis. But kicking mandrax was horrible. It's cold turkey for two weeks and you wake up through these endless restless nights feeling like you're falling off the edge of a cliff. I still have trouble sleeping. Even when I'm not touring, I struggle. There are times, usually in the very small hours, when I trade it all in for the ability to get into bed and fall asleep. I wouldn't, of course, but I don't think you find many performers who sleep well after a show. If they do, they're probably not doing it right. Good Hello. evening. Hello, everyone, and thanks for coming. Roger, I finished. Thanks a lot, Mr. Kibblewhite. Read it twice. And not only did I love it because it gave a completely different take on The Who and your life, but also I felt it was a sort of generational tale, a generational story. Um, and I want to ask you all about that. But the first question, which I have to ask, is uh, who is Mr. Kibblewhite and why are you thanking him so much? Well, Mr. Kibblewhite was the headmaster at the grammar school uh, that expelled me and I can't quite remember what day it was. It was either the last day of my 14th year or actually on my 15th birthday. And Mr Kibblewhite gave me six strokes of the cane on my bare ass. <laughs> uh, which, and if you've ever, anyone here ever had that, because you never forget it, and at the time, they don't have a book under their arm when they, they hit. It was the full larrup. So that was um, very memorable, to say the least. And then he expelled me. He said, I can't do anything with you. You're an unruly student. Uh, so I'm expelling you. Anyway, as I was leaving his study, he opened the door for me to let me leave. And he stood at the side of it. And as I went through the door, he, he said in my ear, You'll never make anything of your life, adultery. And that did it. My back went up, the hackles and back of my neck went up. And I thought, oh, I'll show you. Thanks a lot, Mr. Kibblewhite. And, and that kind of stuck with me, that, that reaction. And when I said it at the time, of course, I, I, it was said with the arrogance and, and, and you know, the aggression of youth. But when I say it now, I, I really do mean it. I'm thanking Mr. Kibblewhite because if, if he hadn't have done that, who knows, my life could have gone a very different way and um, it, wouldn't be, it wouldn't have been half as good or maybe anywhere near as good 
and indeed could have gone very, very wrong indeed. So he gave that impetus. Something about uh, the early stages of the book is that, the, you know, your childhood was like so many people of, who were coming, you know, born around the time of the war. There was rationing, there wasn't, there wasn't a great deal of money around, but it did seem happy. And then there was grammar school. So I just wanted to ask, before you went to grammar school, your, impre- your very early impressions of childhood, you know, your father coming back from the war, and how much was talked about? Um, it, was a, it, was, it, it, it was an extraordinary time to be born. I was born in a V1 raid, um, because after the, the Blitz, which was on the east end of London, they then started to, to attack with the, with the doodle bugs, which were the V1s, and they were aiming at a lot of arms factories that were in Acton. And uh, there was a double agent at the time called Eddie Chapman. And he was working not only for the Germans, but he was working mostly for the, the Brits. And he was phoning in back to the Germans. He was kind of, you know, radioing them, guiding their bombs and making them drop short or long. Uh, so they never got our factories, but unfortunately, they got us instead. And you can't imagine, I mean, I can't imagine what my mum and, and my aunties must have gone through. Their husbands were away in the army. Uh, and to, 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 to go down into a shelter anywhere in, in Shepherd's Bush at that time, come up, uh, and both ends of your street have completely disappeared, completely gone, uh, must have been really traumatic to say the least but you know in those first years of my life we were 1945 was the worst year of the war for food because the little ration that we had in 1944 we then had to share with the Germans because they were in a worse state than we were and people don't realize that that that, uh, the Brits had to kind of put their rations into a pot that was shared out for everybody. Um, so that was the w- worst year. I've always blamed Hitler for my legs. I mean, I couldn't stop a picking What's wrong the with passage. Your legs? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's bordering on rickets, you know, and it's from lack of good food in that, that very formative year. So, uh, you know, I, I kind of joke about it. But in, we, we, we were incredibly wealthy because... What the war had done to us, it, it had brought communities together. Everybody helped, them, helped each other out. The, the family unit was stronger than it's probably ever, ever been. Um, so we were incredibly wealthy. We didn't have much money, but that gave us a, a, another kind of wealth because whatever we wanted, we had to create it. If we wanted music, we had to sing. And everybody sang. Every pub you go by had a piano with someone banging away. Maybe not very good, maybe really good, but it was always some kind of music coming out. And as the afternoon session got to a close, the mute, the singing would start, and the same in the evening. So everywhere you went, there would be people singing, there would be builders singing in the street, on building sites. The dustman would sing, the postman would sing, the mailman would sing. So it was, it was a fabulous time to grow up, fabulous. And the bomb sites, they made, you know, it's, it's been, a lot of us rockers had the same upbringing, 
Keith Richards very similar. And the bomb sites, you couldn't have had a better playground. I mean, health and safety would have gone mad, but, <laughs> but that's what growing up for kids should really be. It was absolute heaven. The basements filled up with water, and very quickly, the next year, you know, in 1946, there were, there were frogs and toads and newts and all kinds of wildlife. They were absolute oases in this kind of blacky, dirty, smoky part of Shepherd's Bush. You get this sense of great happiness from all that, which is, uh, on the face of it, is a situation which seems quite deprived. But then you get into grammar school. Now, that's seen as the great achievement. And yet, it seemed like that was when unhappiness creeped in. Yeah, I mean, it, what was weird for me is at the time we were encouraged, 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 you've got to do well at school and, and, um, because you've got to pass this thing called the 11 plus. I didn't know what it was, it was just another exam. And I didn't used to mind exams then. I had a great teacher that I got on with and, 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 he, and I empathised with, he empathised with me. He taught me really well. And I flew through the 11 plus with the highest grade in the school. What happened then was that I moved from Shepherd's Bush to Chiswick. We, we, we shared a house in Shepherd's Bush, two families, as most of the houses in Shepherd's Bush were in those days. And my auntie and uncle and three sisters, and my three cousins lived down below us. And I was upstairs with my two sisters. But when I was 11 and past this 11 plus, we moved literally a mile and a half away, and probably no more than that, maybe a mile and three quarters away to, to a place called Bedford Park, which is kind of wedged between Acton and Chiswick. And it could have been the other side of the moon because it was a totally different environment. And I, of course, I was divorced from my mates. They all were kind of called blimey Joes, you know, down the market and could speak in the way I speak and I'm not ashamed of it, I'm proud of it. Um, but I moved into this world where everybody spoke a different language. Oh, hello! <laughs> um, and you very rarely saw anybody on the street in the daytime because they all worked in offices, all carried briefcases. And, and so it was kind of isolated and weird. And I felt kind of strange and I went to this school this grammar school which took in students from Ricelip and Greenford and Harrow all the artist parts of out of West London and they were really upper middle class I just I just they were I, I just couldn't understand the word they said. <laughs> it was kind of, I can't now, but then it was like, what the fuck are they talking about? <laughs> and the teachers were, all of a sudden it was brutal. There was this corporal punishment, which was, which was horrible. I mean, it really was horrible. Some of the teachers were really were sadistic. The gym teacher used to hit you with a slipper. Uh, and you can imagine what a, what a rubber sole, plimp sole would, would be like on, on a bare thigh or whatever. If you weren't doing it right, that's what you'd get. And they seemed to revel in it. So the whole atmosphere was nasty. The first year at the grammar school, you were, you were called a fag and expected to do anything that the sixth form would tell you to do. 
well, that was the wrong thing to do with someone like me. Uh, they bullied me quite badly. Um, and I got fed up with it towards the end of the first year. And I picked up a chair and hit someone with a chair because I thought it was going to come down on me. And they all backed off. And I thought, well, oh, that's a good effect. It's <laughs> a very useful chair. <laughs> uh, and the thing, that's the thing about being small, it's really weird because, you know, uh, you, you spend most of your life looking up at people, talking to them, rather than directly in the face. And um, it's so easy to pick on small people. And these guys used to pick on me quite a bit. But once I kind of showed them that I was willing, willing to fight back, they backed off. And it, what it did to me, it, it kind of set my fight or flight mode into fight. And... Whenever I felt threatened or I was ever going to be in trouble and someone was going to turn, you know, when you could feel it going the wrong way uh, and you get to a point where you think, I'm either going to have to hit him very quickly or I'm going to be on the floor, I usually end up hitting them very quickly. So I don't think I was a bully. Um, it, I was just highly protective. Um, if I was a bully and I bullied anybody, I apologise for it. But I don't think I was. I was just highly protective. How useful would you say that came when in, in the world of rock and roll, which you then followed, in um, terms of, you know, that fight-or-flight mentality? It, came, it, came, it, it, it was useful to get on the stage at all in some of the clubs and the, and the pubs we used to play in, in those days where some fights used to break out in the audience that were very vicious indeed. Bottles, glasses, um, you see some terrible things. Fortunately, in any of those places, we were always left alone. And, and I don't know why that was, but uh, th th one of the interesting things about stages, you, op you, 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 know, you occupy the high ground. So it's very easy to say, come on, come up here and say that. And of course, on their way up, if they're stupid enough to do it, you just go pop. <laughs> and a few people were stupid enough to try that. <laughs> but anyway, this, um, and of course, I, I ended up, um, you know, unwittingly, because when, when, when I got the band together, John joined. This is all, who people will know this. Then, then John introduced me to Pete, whose talent was quite obvious from day one. I mean, the way he played the guitar, the, the way his fingers worked, the chords he played. Even the first time, he was playing chord shapes that I'd, only, I'd never seen anybody else do. And he had a rhythm in this hand from his banjo playing in the trad band he was in with John. It was, he was just completely unique and, and, and an obvious talent. Um, and then, of course, Keith joined, and that, that is legendary because Keith was, was the key to the engine that fired us up. And the Who has, you know, music all, all has its rhythm, and rock and roll's got its rhythm, but the Who has a kind of quirky rhythm. And that's why I say we were never a rock and roll band. We were always a rock band because it's, there's a kind of, it's on that, it's that slam 
and it was Keith Moon that put that in. But, but we all had it, had it in us, but we hadn't found the key. And he was the key that, that ignited it. And that basically was the formation of the algorithm that is the who rhythm. It's, it's totally different than any other mu rock music that's out there. When those four people came together, four very, very different people in character, musical temperament, every single way, did you know that you had something special immediately or did that only become apparent over time? We knew we had something special. We didn't know what it was because we were, in those days, to get work, you were expected to play whatever was in the top 20. And then if we'd play, a, we used to play an American servicemen's club, an officers club in Bayswater every Sunday, thanks to Betty Townsend, who was enormously important to our career in the early days. You know, Pete's mum, Betty, absolute angel. She got us this gig at this American officers club in Bayswater called Douglas House. And it, we used to play it every Sunday afternoon. And of course, all these GI officers from all over America used to come up and they used to ask for Johnny Cash, you know, and, uh, uh, you know all these, Chuck Berry, Jerry Lee, all these people that we, we barely heard of. And of course, we were expected the next week to play them what they requested the week before. So we had to go searching for this music. And they loved the fact that we were trying for them. We were, you know, we were not just going, this is what we do and we're not doing anything else. If they requested it, we'd try and do it. Um, so I knew we had something, but we didn't have it quite made. And it was only when we started to get into playing the blues and and Tamla Motown and uh, uh, James Brown and that kind of stuff, where it really started to, to become freer. Um, and Moon's drumming, again, had a lot to do with that. Moon, Moon's drumming and Pete's guitaring. Moon would double up the beat. We'd get bored of the 12 bar. So he, instead of doing that, ching, 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 he would double it up and go, and then it would become this cacophony of noise. And Pete developed the feedback. And then, for some reason, we kind of were telepathic. It was really weird. that We had an ability to kind of read the vibe of the music. And we could turn on a sixpence and we'd go from something like Smokestack Lightning into a a kind of jazz-based thing. And it would be instant, all together, with no conductor, just everybody feeling each other. It was extraordinary. It's a big leap, though, to go from that to Pete Townsend's original material. What did you think when he first started presenting material? And also, what was the kind of conversation about that? Um, it was quite obvious that we were going to need our own material. And Pete had written a couple of songs uh, previously that we'd done in a demo studio somewhere. And again, down to Betty Townsend, we'd made this demo. I can't remember what it was called. There's probably some aficionado in the audience who can shout it out. But we did a demo anyway um, of two songs. Uh, and so it was obviously he could write. Um, but then we were, we were kind of um, 
mimicking other people. Uh, we did, we did um, what was it, I'm the Face as the high numbers. Yep. Which Keith, uh, sorry, Pete Meaden uh, plagiarised from uh, John Lee Hooker or someone like that, I can't remember. That would be Pete Meaden, uh, your manager at the time. Yeah, he, yep. Pete Meaden was our manager yep. and, and was the, the one that turned us load of yobs into mods. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. <laughs> well, it was only a look. It was nothing yeah. more. <laughs> um, uh, and he, he plagiarised that song and wrote some lyrics to it that he thought were mod lyrics. I'm the face if you want it, babe. Um, but it was quite obvious, obvious then that we were only ever going to be a covers band unless we could write our own songs. And then the kinks hit with the, you know, all day and all of the night. Uh, you really got me and that kind of songs, those kind of songs. And, and Pete did a, basically a kinks copy with I Can't Explain. But his lyrics, immediately you, un, you, you became aware that this was coming from somewhere a little bit different than most writers. Um, so that was the, f the first hit, and that got to number eight in the charts. We were very pleased with that. Um, and then, of course, there was Anyway, Anyhow, Anywhere, which Pete, Pete had, he probably had three quarters of it written, but he didn't have the bridge. And we ran it down at the Marquee Club because we were due to record a song, what song, we didn't even have it, the next day for the next single. That's how it was in those days. And I, I came up with, the, with the, the middle eight, you know, nothing gets in my way. It's typical my attitude to life, <laughs> not even, even locked doors. That was my addition to it. And so that was a kind of a, a co-writing experience. And then, then there was uh, um, obviously, you know, the substitutes and the my generations, which were easy. Pete was obviously off on another trajectory that was, again, so different than anything else that was out there. Uh, then we got to the tricky part of our career for me, which is when he presented uh, Happy Jack. Happy Jack, Pictures of Lily, pretty strange songs. Happy Jack. Well, Pictures of Lily I kind of liked, and that was, wasn't easy because it was a story. It was great. Happy Jack I find kind of weird. <laughs> and I thought, how the, how the hell do I sing this? You know, who, who do I sing it like? Because Roger Daltrey as a singer wasn't really formed yet. Roger Daltrey could be James Brown or Johnny Cash or Roy Orbison, you know. So... It was very confusing to me. And then after, the, after Happy Jack came, I'm a boy. <laughs> <laughs> wow. How do I do this? You know, um, but I listen back to it now, and it's really quite extraordinary because, you know, the song is about a, a woman that wanted, wanted uh, girls, and, and one of them turned out to be a boy, but she treated him like a girl. And obviously, I put myself in the position of what it must have been like to have been a boy being treated like a girl. And I, sing, I sang it with a voice that, when I listen back to it, is incredibly haunted. And it, it sounds like it's got a quality to it that is really, really kind of divorced from its body. It's, it's almost like you can hear the boy you know, not wanted to be a girl. Uh, 
and, and singing, I'm a boy, I'm a boy, but it's kind of compressed and squashed and, it's and lonely. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a strange quality, and I'm very proud of it now. But at the time, I was... I, I thought, I'm, I'm not quite getting to grips with this. But it's a kind of, it must be a sort of form of acting in a way. I mean, did, did, Pete, did, did Pete sit down and tell you, right, this is a song about... No, uh, he never told us anything. Did he tell you anything? <laughs> Does he now? <laughs> no, no, I never ask him. I don't need yeah. to know. I, it has to live in my head. And I have to internalise the words and feel what the song means to me. And I have to study those words and, and, and what those words are saying to me because that's how I, it touches me and then I have to make that try and touch you and when I sing I sing to you I don't, I don't when people say you know what's it like singing to half a million people I say well it, it isn't any different than singing to one because I sing to you I don't sing at you I sing to you and I want to touch you with, with the emotion and the empathy of the song. I want the song to move you and that's what it's about for me. I felt that, you may completely disagree with me Roger but I felt that your, the, the kind of unique voice came maybe with I Can See For Miles it felt like that was the beginning of the journey which then led to Tommy and Quadrophenia and everything else that, that is true but I Can See For Miles, you know the, the period up from my generation until I can see for miles was the, the period that I was kind of sacked from the band, reintroduced to the band under the condition I wouldn't fight anymore. Uh, and, and, and I went back under the condition that they wouldn't take drugs anymore before the show. I didn't care what they did after the show, but before the show, we go on straight because the music meant too much to me. I also knew how much I had to work to go and see Cliff Richard and the Shadows at the Chiswick Empire in 1960, early 1963, I think it was, maybe 1962. And how, how much those tickets cost to go, and how much hard I had to work to get that money to go and see them. And I realised that if you're an artist on this stage and people see paid money to sit out there and watch you, you owe it to them to deliver. And you owe it to them to be in a condition to deliver. And the drugs interfered with that. They didn't make it better. It, it made, might have made it feel better to whoever was taking them on the stage. But generally, from, from the, the audience's point of view, the, the playing went downhill. And you have to remember, as a singer, it's a strange place on the stage to occupy because I stand, I kind of stand out there. Out there. <laughs> I'm not very good with these mics. <laughs> and, and the band are all back here. So you, I don't see them. But what I do is feel them. So I, I'm very aware of every little detail of what they're doing. And if one of them is on speed or on downers, I feel it, and it can, I can feel that the, this engine's firing on, if it's a, a, you know, a V8, it's only firing on six cylinders sometimes. That's, that was when Moon was at it. Um, but there was a period there in the first European tour where they, all three of them got very, very 
heavy on amphetamine um, because it was our first European tour. And the playing got so bad. They were playing so fast, so loud, I couldn't get the words to the songs in. So, I mean, I'm standing there, this is, this is a waste of time. And I got kind of angry. I got really angry because I just thought, these people have paid to see us and this is crap. So I stormed off stage while they were smashing the gear up with glee and flushed the stash of amphetamine, which were in Keith's suitcase, down the toilet. And um, Keith went crazy about and attacked me with a tambourine. <laughs> and then you laugh because it sounds, it sounds like oh, a tambourine oh how dangerous was that but I've got to tell you it wasn't the flat nice soft pigskin side of the tambourine that he attacked me with he attacked me with the, the tambourine sideways in his hand slashing at me with the bells which is a very dangerous very painful weapon. if it gets you it yeah. could have been very nasty needless to say he didn't reach me. <laughs> <laughs> I should say at this, this point, you're managed by these two remarkable, unusual characters, Kit Lambert and Chris Stamp. What was the relationship with the band and, and those guys like? Well, the, the truth is that the, the, the Who would not have made it to where they are at all without the help of Kit Lambert and Chris Stamp. They were... They were the most creative managers anyone could wish for. And they came at a time when we were, we were, we were the bud ready to burst. And, and they were the plant food that, that grew that, that plant into the, you know, to, the, to, the, to what it became. Um, they were incredible. They were two very different characters. Kit Lambert, obviously, was Oxford educated, studied ancient Greek, um, and Chris Stamp was from Canning Town, um, brother of Terence Stamp, the, the, the film star, even better looking than Terence. Uh, and so we had this kind of gore blimey Joe one side and this kind of Noel Coward, flamboyant, uncomfortably gay character on the other. But because Kit was the, the, the son of Constant Lambert, the composer, he, he always had the dream and the vision that, that, that the three-minute pop song, as much as he loved it, as much as we do, did, and I still do, I think it's incredibly valuable, he said, this music can do more. And it was him that encouraged Pete to start writing uh, longer pieces of music, trying to st tell more narrative within a, within a musical framework. We did the mini opera and then went on to do what became the one thing that really put the who on the map, which was Tommy. And, and it, was, it was Kit Lambert that drove that. It was Kit Lambert that, that guided the story. Um, it, 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 it was very much a who Tommy, and that includes Kit Lambert and Chris Stamp, as well as the, 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 the other three members of the band and myself. It's also a big leap, of course, you know, you did have the who sell out, but then Tommy is such a different thing, you know, it hadn't really been done before on that scale. 
So what were your impressions of Tommy when you first, you know, when you first heard the demos or, you know... Well, the demos came in different, you know, we, it started with one song, it started with a, a, Amazing Journey, and, and Pete had this idea of, of what life would be like just to experience through vibration, because music is vibration, and so it's, it's all this musical link all the time. Um, what would it be like just to experience life through vibration? Uh, and if you were deaf, dumb, and blind, that's kind of all that would be happening to you. It would be all senses. And um, I thought, that, that this is really interesting. But it was just that one song. And every, every night, they, him and Kit would have chat and chat and chat. And he'd come back the next day with a very rough demo of a song, that, 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 you know, like Acid Queen or whatever. And gradually, the thing built itself. And then... Pete said to John, you know, I, I, want, I want this to have a dark side. We need, you know, we, we need a cousin Kevin. We need a spiteful side of human nature. And we, we need, you know, the Uncle Ernie character. We need, we need that side. This is all about humanity. And it, those, those kind of parts are, are all within us. It's just that they don't come out in all of us. But it's all potentially there, which is scary, but it is true. Um, so he got John to write Uncle Ernie and Cousin Kevin and then Keith with his very black humour um, said well what they should do at the end is all go to a holiday camp which is, which is basically like a, you know uh, 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 becomes the end because they all, they all rebel um, and we thought oh, that's a good idea so uh, the, the holiday camp sequence which is you know, attributed to Keith Moon. It was his idea, although Pete wrote the music. I'm just going to jump, I know it's a few years forward, but I've got to ask you about Tommy the film, because it's still one of the most remarkable films. It's, there's nothing like it. Nothing, you know, Ken Russell was <laughs> absolutely unusual character. He, he, I believe he broke your back, amongst many other things, made you go, <laughs> go... So just tell me about that. I mean, you know, he pushed you so far, didn't he? No, I don't think he did. I mean, the, the, you see, uh, Ken was so loved and he was such a cuddly, warm character. And he was... The wonderful thing about that whole period of time is that the artists were in charge of the creation. It wasn't like... It wasn't the accountant. <laughs> it was the artists. And Ken was one of those flamboyant geniuses who, who just wanted to try things. And if you were working for him and had the privilege to do that, you'd, you'd die for him. And yes, he did have me. When I look back on it, I think I must have been mad. I must have been mad. I mean, it, it, like that, the hang gliding in those days, was it was perhaps the first sort of four years of hang gliding ever, where hang gliders, instead of laying down like they do today, all nice and streamlined, you're sitting up on a little wooden swing, hanging from this piece of plastic, hoping that it goes up. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, but you do it for Ken because he was just so... He just had a quality about him that he was so enthusiastic and everything will be all right. And, of course, everything in the end was all right apart from that I might have broken my back, but apart from that, everything was all right. Apart from that minor detail. <laughs> yes, a minor detail. But, I mean, I look at it now, and I, 
I, I think of, of that welcome scene in it, the song Welcome. And we were filming in, in a house on Canvey Island. Oh, no, was it Can not Canvey Island, Hailing Island. And, and it was a, just a detached house, quite posh. And it had a swimming pool in the back, in, in the garden. And he's, look, he's scratching his beard and he's looking at the house. He's going, I, this is the house, Roger, where we're going to do welcome. This is the outside of it. What do you think we can do to make it, you know, quirky? He said, um, and he's looking at the house, scratching his beard. And he said, do you think you could get up to the chimney? <laughs> And I looked at the chimney, it's a two-storey house with a, you know, a pitch roof. Yeah, why not, Ken? <laughs> and I mean, and the next thing I know, I've, I've gone up the drain pipe, climbed up the roof, and I'm hanging on the chimney. And the whole front part of that film is me singing, hanging on to the chimney of this house. I didn't give it any more thought than that at the time, but now I look back, I must have been mad. <laughs> well, it's back to the bomb sites, isn't it? You know, you... you I mean, you just to think, yeah. um, well... Bomb, I'm bomb-proof. Yeah. <laughs> Just to go back uh, to... So one of Pete's projects, which didn't happen, but in a way did, in the sense that it became something else, is Lifehouse. It's a really strange idea, and it seemed like it was such a kind of wide idea for Pete to get a handle on. Did you but, find that with Pete, that sometimes you know, these ideas were too unformed, they're too, you know, too crazy? The, the problem with, with Lifehouse, uh, as it was presented to us, is that Pete wrote, wrote the whole scenario of it with the idea of making a film. And Pete is just not a, 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 a filmmaker. And the idea of it, I thought, was very interesting, that, that if we ever find the real source of where, what life is, you know, when you go down past the atoms, the atom, you go smaller and smaller, nano, 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 you'll find a musical note. And that kind of intrigued me, and I loved that. I thought, that's really... But how do you make a film of that? And that was the problem. It wasn't... It was stuck in Pete trying to make this film, write, writing a script that kind of didn't make any sense at all. Um, I don't know whether he's published it, but it, it was extraordinary. None of us could get our brain around it. But equally, that he then presented the music that became Who's Next. And I mean, that was fabulous. I mean, to hear that for the first time, it was like, wow, this is so special. That was almost the birth of, almost like the birth of Stadium Rock. You know, those songs suddenly had this, this epic quality which hadn't really existed before. No, that's right. I mean, he, he really jumped the wire on that one. He really did. And, um, and the great thing about that record is we had the demos possibly for about six or seven weeks before we ever recorded them. And that's the first time that's, and only time that's ever happened to us. Um, where by the time we got in the studio, we were comfortable with the music and we kind of made it the bands rather than mimicking a Pete Townsend demo. Uh, and I, that's why I think that album stands up as being perhaps the best recorded album we ever did. I mean, I, I think Quadrophenia suffered. The only reason I had problems with Quadrophenia ever in, in its original form was that we recorded it while we were, lear we were learning it. Um, we were recording it in a studio that we just built, not knowing anything about building studios. It was, wasn't tuned uh, to 
true sound so that what we were hearing or we thought we were getting onto the tape wasn't actually there. And um, so that kind of, for me, who's next is the best one of, of the lot as far as record, recording quality. One of the th themes, I guess, that I got from the book, especially when you get to who's next, when you get to that period, is that you've got something special, you've got something which has been successful now, and yet all rock bands are volatile, but I think it's fair to say that the Who are unusually volatile. You know, when you've got Keith Moon as your drummer blowing up toilet seats and toilets, not just the seat, yeah, and the rest of the hotel. <laughs> hate you. <laughs> <laughs> so my question is, did it always feel like it was on the edge of falling apart? And did you feel that it was your job to hold it together? Um, well, I was the only straight one with three addicts in the band and, and someone had to keep it together. Um, but it never really felt like it was falling apart. No, it didn't, uh, you know. Um, there were times in the kind of early 70s, the mid between 1971 and 1976, where Keith did a few of his naughty drugs uh, and passed out on stage, where we were, we were struggling a bit. I never thought it would, would, would end, but we were even, we were contractually obligated to do a certain amount of shows. And we did consider maybe we'll have to gonna get another drummer in just to finish this tour and do something about Keith because he was taking stuff that was literally putting him out. Um, you know, a couple of shows there he collapsed on stage. And, and one show he did with a needle sticking out of his foot with the doctor bumping him full of adrenaline to keep him awake. I mean, it wasn't funny anymore. Uh, and, but I never thought it would fall apart, no, never. And, you know, I mean, the, great, the first great tragedy was, of course, Keith's death. Uh, you talk in the book about how you'd expected it, but in a way that made it even more surprising because you'd been waiting, it for, the, waiting for it for four or five years. It made it, made it more traumatic um, because... We, He'd had so many scrapes, and Keith, Keith Moon was fearless. He really was fearless. Uh, uh, and there were so many times, in, in, probably in the previous four or five years, that he could have gone, uh, but he didn't. So when it did actually come, and I picked up that phone, I still remember it like it was yesterday. I was in the kitchen at home, and I picked up the phone and, and Pete said, he's gone and done it. And I who, what? He said, Keith, he's killed himself. He's, gone, he's, he's died, he's dead. And it was, it hit like a hammer. Were it there many conversations it. between you and John and Pete about, about Keith and about how to, whether to carry on? Well, of course we did, we, we, we met. I can't remember when we did meet. I just went out for a very, very long run and just kind of psyched myself up to try and get through this pain. It was horrible. I ran around the farm twice, I think, that day. I was... Uh, it was... It was, I, I, it was wonderful. I felt totally helpless that day. Um, I can't remember. It seems a blur the first week after that now. I can't remember when we first met. 
but I know that Pete and I talked. Um, John really didn't used to say much in any meeting. He wasn't, he was the quiet one. Uh, but we discussed what we had left and, and I said to him, you know, what we have that's most important of all to me, and, and I suppose I had, uh, you know, an axe to grind because it, is, it, is, it was my life much more than it probably ever would, would have been uh, Pete or John's. Um, I, I, we have the music, and, I, and the music for me was all important. And that followed the same when John died. I said to Pete, we've still got the music, and if we play the music, it kind of brings them back alive. When the Who play today, Keith and John aren't with us, but they're there in the music, and they always will be. And the, the noise that they made in their lifetime is still echoing in that music. Yeah, it is and that's kind of, And that's kind of wonderful. I like that. Yeah, it's a lovely thing. I mean, with John, he was, it was the beginning of a tour, wasn't it? John was the day before the tour. Right. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah. Um, but I wasn't as shocked with John because he'd been ill for a long time. Uh, he had heart problems. And no one was going to... They didn't call John the Ox for nothing. He was as stubborn as stubborn can be. And he had a lifestyle that was the way he wanted to live his life. And you could, you could talk till the cows come home to him about changing his lifestyle to help himself out. It, it would just go in this ear and out of that ear. John was completely unconditional. He was going to go this way. He was the quintessential rock star. And he, he died that way. And like, like I say in the book, if, if they'd have left him in the bed that he died in at the Hard Rock, put a case around it, made it an exhibit, he would have been as happy as Larry. <laughs> Be a great honour. No, he would. Yeah. I mean, that was John Edwards. He would have thought, this is a triumph. Yeah. You know. I've won. Yeah. <laughs> Just going back a bit, there was a break in the, in the 1980s, and I wanted to ask, I mean, that came after a pretty traumatic time, with the band at least. When, the, when that split, or, well, I don't know, it was seen as a split at the time, certainly a break, did it feel like a relief, or was it a great, did it feel like a, a great tragedy? Um, but it happened because we made the mistake of trying to replace Keith Moon and dear Kenny Jones, who's a great drummer and a great drummer for the Small Faces, was not the right drummer for The Who. And the only way, it, it, it just all started to go wrong. We needed a break. We didn't, we, we, we tried to, to, what we should have done was left the door open. You know, if we'd have been, when you take a wall out of a building, you know, you've got a three-sided room. The room can be any, any size you want and you can replace that missing wall with whatever you want. We kind of locked ourselves into something that didn't work and the only way to get out of it was to break it. And we had that long break till 1989. I didn't mind, I, I, I never ever thought, thought it was over. Um... I had my acting career, my, as I call my little acting career, because I didn't want the big acting career. I, I, I had that taste of Hollywood with, with Tommy. I got nominated for a Golden Globe. I had all that stuff. I, I was out of my depth. Um, 
And I didn't like it. It kind of felt phony to me. Um, too many smiling faces. <laughs> Happy to see you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Need the other members of the Who to keep you in line. <laughs> too brute. <laughs> so after that break, how about getting back to it? What, what did, you know, did, did, was everyone revived and feeling that it was a new well, stage? Well, by the time the we came, came to 1989, Pete wanted to do it again. And, and, and for some reason or, or the other, he was kind of... He was moaning about his hearing, because he, he, he does have trouble with his hearing, as do we all at our age and in the job we've done. Um, but he wanted to do it again, and, and I just gave him his reign. I just said, you know, sure, let's do it. Let's have a celebration tour. Uh, was, it, was it after was it 25 years? or I can't remember what, what event it was. It was a celebration of some sort. Um, and I just gave him his reign, and he, he wanted to be a band leader. Uh, uh, which was qu quite obvious from his his face-to-face um, uh, -face record that he'd done. He, it's quite obvious that Pete, you know, Pete's dad was in a big band, and Pete had this thing about big bands, and he wanted to be a big band leader. So I thought I'd let him have his reign and put whatever band he wanted to get together to call the Who to go out and play our music. And that was the 1989 tour of America, and we did England as well. Didn't do any of Europe. Um, and it was all right. The tour was okay. We had Simon Phillips on drums, which was a real step up from Kenny, because although he was a bit jazzy, he, he kind of got the rhythms right. Um, we had brass. We had backing singers. I called it the Bahama Rimba Band. But, uh, but, it, but it went down well, and it got us back together. And then nothing. <laughs> nothing again for another literally nothing again until that was 1989 there was nothing again until 1999 10 years that's a long time yes a long long time but then when it came back together again after that 10 years I'd found Zach Starkey and finding Zach Starkey was, was a, 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 you know just a piece of luck um, because the, the history of Zach, he was, you know, Keith Moon babysat Zach. Keith Moon, poor, poor thing, he survived that. <laughs> I thought, this guy survived what Keith Moon as a babysitter, he could survive anything. <laughs> he could survive the who. And, uh, and uh, he, he just, he, I, I, as I say in the book, finding Zach was like finding a di diamond in a barrel of sawdust. Yeah, he was so special. And he totally gets our algorithm and he, he made it work and when we reformed again in 1999 we reformed for a charity show we were, Neil Young called us up and, and asked us to do his bridge school charity that he, he did in San Francisco every year it was for a, a school for um, handicapped children and um, so we said, yeah, we'll do it. We did two, two days for him. And that got us back together. And uh, Zach came along and we did a couple of other shows to pay all the expenses of getting out there so that we didn't have to give Neil Young a bill for our transport and all that. Um, we did a few other shows with Zach on drums as the Who for the first time since Keith died, really, as the proper Who. And it, it was just great. It was just fabulous. And then since then, I've asked Neil 
Neil Young several times to do the Royal Albert Hall, and he doesn't answer his emails. <laughs> well, that's, that's Neil Young. They're all the same. They're all the same. These big stars, you know. So, Roger, I'm going to ask you one more question before I've got a, a handful of questions from, from the audience. Like I said at the beginning, I felt that the book didn't just tell your story. I kind of felt that it told a generation story, and I loved the book for that. What did you learn about yourself from writing the book? And, you know, what, what did it make you reflect on? Um, it, it taught me that you have to... The best thing in life is always to be honest. And no matter how difficult sometimes it is, it's, it's, it's a much easier route in the end. Um, it's kind of scary at my age, because, you know, 75 next year, there's so much behind me, and I... <laughs> Can't be a lot in front. Uh, but uh, so that's kind of scary. But equally, uh, um, after the scrape I had a few years ago with meningitis, I'm just glad to be here. I've got a lot of wonderful family. I'm incredibly lucky that I, I met my partner in life. And we've been together for 51 years. That's um, not, not usual in rock. I mean, that's no, one of the no, great success no. stories, in, but which is fantastic. This is a very special woman who understood the business we were in and, and you know, lived with me as me, and we were always honest with each other. We are true partners and, in some ways, closer together than we've ever been. And my children, all of my children, the ones prior to Heather and the ones I have with Heather and our grandchildren... They're wonderful people. I'm so proud of that. To bring good people into this world, is, it, it makes you feel good. Roger, that was brilliant. Thank you so much. Thanks, Will. Great. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much for coming. And I can't tell you what uh, the Who fans mean to Pete and I. Your, your loyalty over the years... Um, means a lot to us it's more than the, a group and it's fans it's a family and I I'll be eternally grateful to that all the best to you